my biological parents. Father says, we are your biological parents. Now pack up. The new ones will be here in 20 minutes. <laughs> Isn't that what we want to do sometimes? Okay. So we're starting a new book, Book of Malachi, which I got to say was very, very convicting when I was doing this message to me. We're starting with chapter one, and next year actually marks my 40th year in my career as a nurse. And I'm embarrassed to say that there are many times when my feet hit the floor in the morning and I don't want to go do it. It's like I'm tired. It's the same thing over and over again, not again. It's very tiresome and repetitive. And frankly, some days my heart's not in it. I feel very convicted in that. I'm just going through the motions. Thank goodness the Lord forgives me for those days and usually gives me a blessing through one of my patients. And I know this isn't just true for career women. I know it's true for mothers who have to put the 50,000th load of diapers in the, in the washing machine and, and everything else. But this is what was happening to the priests in uh, the beginning of the book of Malachi in chapter 1. And just to give a little introduction to this tiny book, it holds a really unique place in Scripture. It's the last book of the Old Testament. And after this, there are no words from a prophet from the Lord who's inspired for 400 years, there's silence. No inspiration comes from the Lord for 400 years. And it's not to say that nothing was happening historically, but there was just no inspirational word from a prophet that was entered into scripture. The next time we hear of anything after the 400 years is when John the Baptist opens up the scene in the New Testament. And in Matthew, we see that where he's preparing the way of the Lord's ministry. This little tiny book contains only four chapters, but it's packed packed full of a lot of information and a lot of application. The name Malachi means my messenger. It was written in the 400s BC, and it describes the deplorable spiritual condition of Israel at that time. We don't know much about Malachi himself, you know, his parents or anything like that, but we learn a lot about Israel through his word. He wrote the book about 100 years after the Jews had come out of captivity in Babylon, uh, they had returned to Jerusalem probably um, from about 70, 70 years, actually it was, re wait a minute. He wrote the book about 100 years after the Jews had returned to Jerusalem from their 70 years of exile in Babylon, about 80 years after the temple was built. So there were years of temple worship going on, animal sacrifices, and the novelty of it all had really worn off. It was getting to the point like they could care less. The book kind of reads... It's funny, the book reads kind of like a lawyer and a defendant in a courtroom. It's framed in a question and answer format, and God asks the question, and then the people respond with a question. The first chapter deals with God's covenant love for Israel and Israel's blatant disregard for his love and disrespect for his name. Second chapter um, deals mainly with the deplorable lifestyle of the priests, their divorce and intermarriage. The third chapter talks about John the Baptist and the Messiah, and the fourth chapter deals with the coming of the Messiah and the day of the Lord. So we're going to sing the song, You Don't Love Me Anymore. And that's the song they were singing in verses 1 through 5. And I'm going to begin, The Oracle of the Word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I've hated Esau. And I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, we'll be beaten down, but we'll return and build up again. 
Thus says the Lord, oh, you may be rebuilt, but I will tear down, and men will call this territory wicked, and the people towards whom the Lord is indignant forever. And your eyes will see this, and the Lord will be magnified beyond the border of Israel. What Malachi is saying is that God loves Jacob, meaning Israel, but he hates Esau. But how could lo God love one brother and hate another? The reference made here is not so much about love and hate as it is to choose to show preferential treatment or favor to one and not to another. Jesus in Luke 14.26 said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, scripture obviously isn't teaching us to hate our families. It teaches the opposite. But what Jesus was saying is, I come first. God comes first. That's the first commandment. God is number one, and everyone else falls in line behind him. He has preference over all. God choosing to bestow love and favor to Jacob and not his brother has caused many to charge God with being unfair. How can he choose one and not both? That's so unfair. Isn't God unjust? Well, this touches again on the subject of election and God's sovereignty, which we could sit here and do this for about a year and we still wouldn't come up with anything. But the truth is that God has the right, the divine right, to choose to show mercy to one and withhold his mercy from another. This is not about justice and fairness. If we're looking for justice, then God would be just and fair to condemn every one of us to hell for the way that we are. Election is not a doctrine of justice. It's a doctrine of mercy. The fact that God shows mercy to anyone is an absolute miracle of grace. Two theologians were discussing this very thing, and one said to another, I have a serious problem with Malachi 1.3, where God says, Esau I have hated. The other theologian said, I have a greater problem with Malachi 1.2, where it says, Jacob have I loved. Jacob had a reputation for being a bit of a conniver. He wasn't the greatest guy in terms of character. Yet God's choice was not based on anything man had done because the choice was made before they were born. Romans 9, 14. What shall we say then? Is God unjust? By no means. He said to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. But in these verses, God is reminding Israel of his special covenant love for them. God had selected the Jewish people as set apart for himself. He made promises to Israel that were made to no one else. He promised them a land. He promised us our Messiah and a future that can never be revoked. And in spite of the erroneous teaching we hear today, Israel is not the church, and the church is not Israel. They're distinct from one another. The love God has and the promises he has made are unique to the people of Israel. Yet they were complaining in their hearts and revealing in their actions that God didn't love them anymore. I'm sure there was a small remnant who did genuinely love the Lord and feel his love, but by and large, the priesthood was corrupted. They had been through so much for so long, they had began to spurn the love of God, not stopping long enough to think that the realized, to realize that the reason they were having all these problems and being exiled and such was due to their own sin. Yet they continued to blame God, who had actually was the one who rescued them again and again. But God held to his word concerning Esau because he did lay waste to Edom, and to this day it's nothing. Yet Israel has stood the test of time and is with us today. But are we really any different than Israel? We don't doubt God's love from time to time. When things are going well, it's easy to feel God's love. But when illness or death 
or hard times come, emotions take over, and we often don't feel God's love. And that's the danger because God's love is not a feeling. It's who God is. It can't be changed by circumstances. God will always love those who belong to him. So we must base our theology on the word of God, not our feelings, for they can never be trusted, but God can. And Israel should have known this. God had rescued them over and over again, parting the Red Sea, feeding them with manna and quail in the wilderness while they complained about the menu. And their memories towards his love was always very short. They were forgetful and short-sighted. And we can be the same way. But like God, no matter what people think about Israel, we Christians are commanded to love Israel and pray for her because she's very special in God's eyes. So the courtroom scene continues with questions and answers. Verse 6 through 9. A son honors his father and a servant his master. So then if I'm a father, where's my honor? And if I'm a master, where's my respect, says the Lord of hosts? O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised them? It's almost like, who, me? They don't get it. You are presenting defiled food upon my altar, but you say, how have we defiled thee? In that you say the table of the Lord is to be despised. When you present the blind for sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you present the lame and the sick, is that not evil? Why don't you offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you, or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts. The priests were supposed to be the leadership of the nation, and whatever they did would affect the nation as a whole. They treated God like a second-class citizen, despising and disrespecting his name, using the worst of sacrifices to be offered in the temple, and keeping the best for themselves, I might add. Levitical law commanded that only perfect and unblemished sacrifices were to be offered. They knew full well what they were doing, but the people went along with it. Diseased animals were being offered to the Lord, who is the Holy One, who had rescued and protected them so many times. It's just like what Isaiah said in 29:13: They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. The Lord speaks almost in a sarcastic way when he says, well, why don't you offer this to your governor? Almost challenging them as if to say, you'd never do this to a man, but you'll do it to me. The duties of the priests were to be spiritual leaders of the people. They were to teach them the law of Moses and perform the sacrificial duties in the temple in accordance with all that Moses had taught them from the beginning. And all of biblical history does reveal how serious God is towards those who profane his name and his sacrifices. Just a few examples, Leviticus 10, the sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, offered strange fire as sacrifice, which they were not authorized to do, and they died. God consumed them. In Numbers 16, Korah and his brothers, the sons of Levi, rebelled against Moses, offered up incense, and God was furious, opening the ground and swallowing them. In 2 Samuel 6, Uzzah, only trying to help, reached out and simply touched the ark in an effort to prevent it from falling off a cart and was struck dead. Well, the ark shouldn't have been on a cart in the first place. It should have been carried by poles by the Levites. So these sacrifices of the priesthood were a serious matter to God, but none of them took his name seriously. The priests were so corrupt in their spiritual duties that it only stands to reason it was a matter of time before all of Israel was like this. God, therefore, rejected their worship, and Israel's response was, what? Who, us? What do you mean? We haven't done anything. 
It's almost like a kid getting caught with his hand in the cookie jar. They, they didn't have a clue. But they knew. And this continued right up into the New Testament. In Mark 11, we see Jesus tossing the tables of the money changes over and cleansing the temple. His house had become a den of thieves instead of a house of, a house of prayer. It had become a flea market, selling pigeons, dirty birds in a holy place. The priests had become apathetic and mechanical in their worship. They were simply going through the motions. Their heart wasn't in it at all. It was nothing but empty worship, which was an insult to the God who had chosen them to be his people. But every time they sinned, God judged them. They would cry out for help, and God was there to rescue them. Yet they were always wanting more. Now God had had enough. Verses 10 through 11. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates, that you might not usel uselessly kindle fire upon my altar. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord, nor will I accept any offering from you. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place incense is offered in my name, and a grain offering that's pure for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Yes, the Lord is very jealous for his name. The Lord was saying to them, just, cl just close the, the gates, close the whole temple down. It would be better than what's going on now. Just shut it down. In verse 10, when the Lord says, I'm not pleased with you, that might as well be the opposite of, well done, thy good and faithful servant. The Lord mentions how important it is. Over and over in Malachi, the Lord is referred to as the Lord of hosts. This term literally in Hebrew means the Lord of armies or Jehovah Sabaoth. He is the Lord of all beings, angelic and human, as well as the entire creative order of the universe. His name is really more than just a name. It's the embodiment of all of his attributes, all that makes him God, his holiness, his love, his sovereignty, his eternality, mercy, and on and on. He's to be respected, honored, revered as the Holy One that he is. And Israel was doing the exact opposite, and God had had enough. But we, too, can be doing the same thing. Do our words and actions in the presence of an unbelieving world bring devastating shame to the name of Christ? That's why it's so important to guard our testimony in order to protect his name from being profaned. God's name is always at stake when we're in the world because we're his representatives. Now, the closing verses, verses 12 through 14, go like this. But you are profaning my name in that you say, the table of the Lord is defiled, and as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. You also say, oh, how tiresome is this? And you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what's taken by robbery, what is lame and sick, and you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the swindler who has made a male in his flock and vows it, to be sacrificed, but yet sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. I'm the great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. What a sad ending to the chapter. What flippant, hypocritical worship this was by Israel. And to make matters worse, they would keep in selling the good animals and even stealing sick ones to offer to God. I mean, how low can you go? These priests did not even meet the qualifications of priesthood according to God's standards. And it would be the same as if in our church today we just allowed anybody to be a deacon, anybody to be an elder or a position of authority. We have biblical qualifications for that. Quoting one teacher on this very subject, whenever we disregard or circumvent the Lord's instructions and requirements, such as requirements for elders, deacons, and in this case, the priesthood, we profane his name 
and desecrate his worship. This is what the priests of Malachi's day were doing, and they needed to go. They even admitted they were tired of it, and they were sniffing at the offerings. What an abomination. God would never accept this. And then they pulled the old bait-and-switch game. They vowed to offer a perfect sacrifice, but when it came down to the day to offer it, they switched it out for a lame or a blind or a sick one. Who did they think they were fooling? They weren't fooling God. But this should challenge us to, to examine our own hearts as to our sincerity of worship. This was lukewarm worship at its finest, just like the church in Laodicea in Revelation 3. They were neither cold nor hot, so God spit them out of his mouth. Does God need worship? No. Is he deserving of it? Yes. The priests called God their father, but they didn't honor him as father. Luke 6.46, Jesus himself said, Why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? But as the Lord said, he will be worshipped among the nations. Philippians 2 says, Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess the name of Jesus, who is God. They will also be worshipped by the Gentile nations in the millennial kingdom. There'll be sacrifices in the millennial kingdom. And they will all honor the one who sits on the throne. The Lord accuses the priests of saying how tiresome the temple wor worship had become and how that must have saddened him to hear that. There were eventual consequences for Israel. Those consequences came not too far into the New Testament as judgment. In 70 AD, Titus and the Romans destroyed both Jerusalem and the temple and left it in ruins, scattering the people, effectually putting an end to both the priesthood and temple worship. The priesthood in Israel no longer exists today as it was in the Old Testament. But today, because we have the new covenant in Christ, all believers, Jews and Gentiles, are considered priests unto God. Peter says you are a royal priesthood, offering up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ, 1 Peter 2. We act as priests in the spiritual sense whenever we engage in worship, prayer, giving, or ministry. We offer not animals, but ourselves as sacrifices to the living God. Paul writes in Romans 12.1, one of my favorite verses, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Our bodies are now the temple. 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you're God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? God's temple is holy and you are that temple. We no longer need a priest to gain access to God, for all believers now have direct access to Christ. Hebrews describes Christ as our great high priest who is in the heavens, in which we can draw near to with confidence in time of need. Our sacrifices include everything we have, our bodies, our time, our prayers, our worship, and yes, even our money. That's the touchy subject. Do we spend more of our money on ourselves, can we ask ourselves, than do we do giving to the Lord? Or do we just give him what's left over? Warren Wearsby writes about the subject when he says, what does it say about a Christian who spends hundreds or even thousands of dollars a year on gifts for themselves and their family, yet gives God a dollar a week in the offering plate when it is passed? That is a very sobering thought. Or do we give our leftover clothes that we wouldn't be seen dead in to our missionaries abroad who have so little? Do we give our best in whatever ministry God has placed us into? Or in my case, in my job. 
Anything given to God that is second rate is inappropriate in view of who he is. He's worthy of our very best. And maybe we could ask ourselves these questions. Are we bored with the Lord and the work that he's given us to do? Has it become tedious? Are we getting sloppy? Has it become a burden? Has it become monotonous? Or are we just too busy for the Lord? These things sometimes can happen when we're out of fellowship with the Lord. Or maybe we're just trying to do things in the flesh rather than through the spirit. It's good to evaluate our service to the Lord in light of how Israel did. Do we give our best to him? Or does he get what's left over at the end of the day? The Lord really does deserve our very best. So maybe there's something we need to cut back on or even eliminate totally that's causing us to be shoddy in our service or worship. The Lord gave us his very best. It cost him everything because he gave us his one and only son. And if you're here today and you do not have a personal relationship with him, I urge you to please not put it off. And to all who belong to him, we, we, may we make an effort to examine ourselves and strive to give him our very best, for he's worthy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this little book of Malachi and how s extremely convicting it is, at least to me and I'm sure to others. Lord, help us to examine ourselves in light of what we've seen going on with Israel. And Lord, to do a better job to honor you, honor your name in everything we do. In Jesus' name, amen.